Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. This week on the AAF Exchange, we will talk about the proposed $6 trillion in new government spending, the new tax increases that come with that proposal, and the state of the economy with AAF President Douglas Holtzegum. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Kyle. Thanks for having me. How have you been? Doing great. No complaints. Yeah. I have to say, you know, we are getting closer to it feels like normalcy with these podcasts because we're in the same office, just in different rooms. So, you know, getting closer. <laughs> yeah. Tiny steps toward normalcy. I mean, we went to, to a Nationals baseball game. That felt like a big step toward um, normalcy. Yeah. That's not- that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, so you know that I umpire baseball and I got emails this week about, you know, returning and, you know, what the protocol is for doing all that. So it's nice to see things getting back to normal. Um, but let's jump into, you know, what we came to talk about today. We're just four months into the new administration. President Biden has already proposed about $6 trillion in new government spending, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan that is already on the books, the $2.25 trillion. American Jobs Plan got dropped at the end of March. And now we have the new $1.8 trillion American Families Plan. That's a lot. We'll talk about the latest on those proposals in a moment, but let's start with how funds some of these. The Biden administration is pushing the narrative that raising the capital gains tax on those with over a million in income would only affect a few Americans. I mean, I think I saw um, their press secretary the other day talking about how it's only about, you know, 0.03% or something in that nature. What do you think of this whole argument? So the the magic number is three-tenths of a percent of of Americans. So tiny, tiny fraction of taxpayers would, would, quote, pay this tax. Um, That tells you nothing about the impact of that tax. It's a, a literally a meaningless uh, statistic. In evaluating the tax, you want to know how much economic activity is being taxed. So the real question is, what fraction of capital gains will be subject to a higher tax rate? The answer there in 2018, it was 62% of capital gains were held by that top three-tenths of a percent. Uh, the second thing I'd say about that is, you have to be a little bit careful about how you think about the people who are, quote, rich when you're taxing capital gains. There are a lot of people who start a business. Uh, they have basically uh, only sweat equity in it, so they have a zero basis. They go to sell the business off one time in their life. They've got a very large accumulated capital gain. And for tax purposes, they are suddenly a rich person. They're going to go back to being whatever they were before. But in the data, you're only seeing rich people in capital gains because when you realize the capital gains, you're temporarily rich. And that's the, that's the, the thing you see um, again and again. Now, in terms of the impact of raising these taxes, uh, there are really two questions. Number one, how big is the increase? It's substantial. Um, the top um, income tax rate on, on gains right now is 20%. Uh, it would go to the top rate on ordinary income, which is 39.6 plus a surtax of 3.8% that came in with the Affordable Care Act. So you're at 43.4, so more than doubling the tax rate on capital gains, so more than doubling that tax. And uh, they would also change the tax treatment at death. So that's that's tax treatment during your life. You sell off and realize a capital gain. At death, the current treatment is that when you transfer those capital gains to, to a child or some other beneficiary, uh, you pretend that you've essentially sold it and they acquired it at the current value. So, so you get a, quote, step up in basis at death. 
And the value that accumulated during your lifetime is, is at that point untaxed. They would change that to have, quote, carryover basis. So if I bought an asset for $100 and I leave it to you and it's worth $500, there's $400 of capital gains there, all of which would be taxed. So it's a substantial increase because the estate tax rate can be as high as 40%. So you're, you're taking first 40, you got about 50 cents, 56 cents less, you take 40% of that. That's another 20 odd cents. You get a top rate that's over 60%. And, and that's, a, that's a, a fairly substantial tax. Then you ask what happens? Well, we're now taxing this activity, which is saving, investing, and having valuable gains more heavily. Typically that, that results in less of that activity. Less of that activity is, is a, really an anti-growth issue. Uh, it hurts the investments in innovation and, and equipment and, and, and thus productivity. And in that, and in that process, you shift the burden of the tax. And uh, it ends up being not paid by that top three tenths of percent, ends up being paid broadly by people who do not see their real wages rise, do not see their standard of living increase. And in the work we've done in the past, um, you know, on wealth taxes, and this is a, another form of wealth tax, it turned out that the, the, the working uh, folks paid about 60 cents out of every dollar of wealth tax. And I would expect a similar impact here. Yeah, I have to plug your dish here. I mean, I read it this morning and, you know, I thought it, you know, explained everything very nicely for everybody. I think you used the uh, the dish as the example, uh, which was even better. And so that was great to see. We'll have to link to that in the notes and get people to, if people are interested and in, can read that. Yeah, I mean, it's portrayed as this arcane, impossible to master area of tax policy. It's really not. And um, there are only a couple of ideas being batted around and and we just tried to lay that menu out in the, in the Daily Dish. Yeah, yeah. So you also started talking about this at the end of your last answer. But uh, what is the actual impact of these tax hikes? And maybe, you know, just expand on it. Is it a good way to fund the new spending programs in, in this as well? So let's talk about funding rules um, first. And then we'll come back and talk about the list that they come up with. Um, uh, we've been in very special circumstances in 2020, um, pandemic. Um, deep, rapid recession of unusual character, right? I mean, this is a, a, a consumption-driven, household spending-driven recession. Um, and people like me, and I think broadly uh, the policy community, uh, essentially said, if you're doing something to combat the coronavirus, to, to um, help people through the recession, it's appropriate to borrow that money because getting the economy back to full strength is the best thing for the federal budget and uh, the borrowing will be worth it. No, no question about that. However, if you're going to do something that's not focused on the coronavirus, and none of this is, including the American Rescue Plan, I just want to emphasize that, um, you ought to, to pay for it. Okay, so they didn't pay for the American Rescue Plan, 1.9 trillion, and that's a violation of the basic funding rules. There should have been a uh, recognition that a multi-employer pension bailout isn't fighting the coronavirus, setting up the child tax credit for the first time, setting up the enhanced premium subsidies and health, and, you know, go, go through the list. That was really pieces of the American Families Plan done up front and, and, and done on borrowed money. And that, that's it, completely inappropriate. Um, second thing uh, is you get to the American Jobs Plan and, and it's just advertised as infrastructure. And again, we, we've been through the, the semantic game now about what is and is not infrastructure. Put that aside. The tradition in the United States is that infrastructure is financed to the extent possible with user fees. So if you, you're going to bring a, a freighter into a port, you pay for access to that port and thus 
upkeep of the port. When we land planes at uh, airports, uh, there are there are charges on those those gates, and those gates are used to upkeep um, the, the funds from those gates are for upkeep on the airport. And so, those um, who are using and thus wearing out the infrastructure should be paying for that wear and tear. That was the rationale behind the gas tax and the roads, and that got abandoned entirely. Right? I mean, there's no sign of that anywhere. And so I think that there's sort of you know, two strikes on the funding uh, front so far. Strike three, in my view, is that regardless, again, of the quality of the tax, whatever you want to think of those, it doesn't add up. They aren't really paying for it because they have permanent tax increases and they have temporary extensions of, of a lot of these programs. That tells you that if both were permanent, the spending would be much bigger than the than the taxes. And so that's a big problem. So I think, I think they really haven't done a... a, a good job of matching up, want to spend, want to pay for that spending. And the, the taxes they've chosen, I think, have been uh, quite deliberately um, chosen as uh, political weapons as much as, as uh, uh, pay-fors and, and, and economic uh, entities. So, you know, what do they do? They raise the top rate. Uh, th that's always been a lightning rod in, in American politics between the, the left and the right. And so up goes the top rate, capital gains rate. Um, qu quietly, no one's talking about it. They're also going to tax dividends as ordinary income. So you got both of them in there. Um, so you have a, uh, a sort of big increase in the taxes on the return to capital, which are the foundation of, of better long-run growth. And then over on the corporate side, you know, you, you take the the corporate rate from 21, and they want to take it back to, to 28 percent. Um, uh, they want to have a global minimum tax of 21 percent. We are we already have something called the guilty. The, the global intangible lightly taxed income uh, uh, tax, and and that guilty is at 14.5%. We are the only developed country with a, a global minimum tax. No one else does this. So, but that's not enough. They want to get it to 21%. And and so if you look at it, this is this is essentially a, a throwing up a, a pretty big headwind to growth. And and I think that's that's a concern. I think the the corporate is particularly misguided, and I'm pleased to hear the president say he's willing to to perhaps compromise in this, because if you go back to the, the pre-2017 law, we were losing the headquarters of companies all the time. We lost about 100 headquarters in the decade leading up to 2017. We have lost exactly zero since. That's because we were way out of line with the rest of the world. Um, you know, we're 21, that put us in the middle of the pack. Now the pack is, has moved, right? Other countries have lowered their rates. Going to 28 puts us right back to where we were uh, a decade ago. And that seems like a really bad idea to me. Yeah, I've heard a lot of talk about those inversions, which you were just talking about, um, being uh, having pretty much stopped since the 2017. And that would be not, not just pretty much stopped. Completely, I mean, completely stopped. There was one that was in process when the law was passed in December 2017. The headquarters on paper left in, in January 2018, but they issued a statement and they came back. So, I mean, it's a powerful testimony to just how important that was to location decisions. Yeah. Like you said, all these tax increases look like a huge headwind growth, especially as we're continuing an economic recovery from the pandemic. Well, if you think about it, this is like, you know, subtle and, and effective politics. There's going to be a very strong 2021, no matter what they do. I mean, they they, they didn't do it. They, they can't not even they can stop it. Um, and that'll be that. And, and meanwhile, they're talking about these taxes, which will hit in the future. And people are going to be thinking, oh, it, it, it's fine, right? We're talking, the economy's going great. And we've got these tax increases. Don't worry about it. But that bill comes due later. That's the concern. 
Well, we'll have to continue to watch that. But let's talk about the proposals themselves. In the speech last week, the president gave before Congress, President Biden pitched his latest spending package, the so-called American Families Plan. Would you walk us through the high points, as you see, of this plan? Well, there are a series of um, uh, spending plans disguised as tax credits. Right? So these are, a, a refundable tax credit is a, a credit against your taxes. So if you have a $100 tax liability and you have a $200 refundable credit, you get rid of your $100 taxes owed. That's gone. But since it's refundable, you also get $100 back. And so these are essentially commitments to write checks to people regardless of their, their income and thus tax liability. And they take the form of larger subsidies in the um, uh, uh, ACA exchanges, so for health insurance, the uh, larger uh, subsidies for children, the child tax credit, um, $3,000 a child, $3,600 if they're, if they're young children, um, sort of very substantial those are important because they're not work related. You get those no matter what. And then there is a child and dependent care tax credit. So for the costs of child care, typically you'd be working to incur those costs. So uh, they're work related. And then uh, an, an increased EITC for uh, individuals who are not custodial parents. Right? We have this system where essentially if you're a single mother, EITC is fairly generous and very successful at getting people to work. If you're um, you're not the custodial parent, then it's it's pretty minimal, about four hundred bucks. So that gets beefed up. Those are work related. So there's a number one. There's, there's a lot of money there, but number two, they go different directions, right? In addition, they 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 think this is a pro-family, pro-work package because they're going to have money in there for childcare um, to increase the supply of childcare and to help people afford it. I think that's and they're going to have paid family leave. Um, so for both medical and uh, on new parents, uh, there'll be paid leave. Um, that package is 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 in at the heart of it. Their argument that this is pro growth. They think this is going to bring, especially women, into the labor force, generate uh, an increased capacity to produce it, and offset the, some of the negatives in the taxes. The problem with that is, uh, you know, if you look at the international evidence, all of this is being modeled off uh, uh, Western Europe and, and those uh, those countries and uh, labor force participation rates there are lower than they are in the U.S. So it's not obvious that this is going to, to do the trick. And we've experimented in about eight states with paid family leave programs, and they don't unambiguously raise labor force participation. I mean, sometimes it lowers it. So so we'll, you know, th there's going to be a big fight about the economics that there's no question. But but those are the heart of of what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So this proposal, along with the uh, American Jobs Plan, is part of their whole Build Back Better plan. It would inject you know, massive amounts of federal dollars into the economy. It's being billed as this, uh, these proposals to you know, spur serious economic growth. But what would be the economic effect if Congress were to pass these proposals? I think it's unambiguously negative for growth. Um, you know, we, we have a study that we commissioned um, I, I uh, took a look at the Build Back Better plan um, during the campaign and shortly after the election. And, and often in TV appearances and the panel discussions with uh, those on the other side of the aisle, uh, essentially the argument would go, well, I, I'd go through my list of complaints about the, the tax increase. And they say, yeah, Doug, but you don't understand. We're going to spend this money on stuff that is so good that it'll outweigh the taxes. Don't worry, we're fine. And so I thought, OK, let's just take that at face value and see if it's true. And to make sure I didn't put my thumb on the scale, we hired a group down at uh, Rice University to actually do the 
computer modeling and, and to go to the literature and ask, you know, what is the typical impact of roads, bridges, ports, airports, traditional infrastructure on economic growth? Uh, what do we know about broadband and sort of modern forms of infrastructure? So let, let's take this seriously. And, and they did the following very simple exercise. Uh, candidate Biden, not President Biden, candidate Biden said, I want to raise $3.3 trillion in taxes. So we programmed in $3.3 trillion of the taxes he wanted to raise. And then we took every dollar of that and spent it on highly productive infrastructure or research and development. Just plowed it right into the things that we know from the literature really do have some gen genuine benefit. Bottom line, economy shrinks, right? So the stuff that's bad in the tax side is not outweighed by enough good stuff to make it grow. The plan we're actually facing has a lot of taxes. It doesn't have nearly the same concentration on highly productive infrastructure. It's got a lot of other stuff. So I, I think this is a, you know, adds up to be a negative for growth. Wow. Um, in, a, in a recent dish, um, you, uh, you, you brought up dynamic scoring uh, of these tax and spending proposals, um, saying it would give us an idea of how these proposals would impact the economy more. Um, probably similar to the report you were, I mean, the study you were just talking about. What exactly is dynamic scoring and how likely is the administration and Congress uh, going to, you know, use it? Uh, so scoring is the uh, art, and, and I emphasize that, it's, it's a, the exercise that the Congressional Budget Office does with every piece of legislation. And it, it's the answer to the question, how much would this change money flowing into the federal treasury and money flowing out? What are the budgetary impacts of this bill? But in order to, to do the, quote, scoring fairly and compare bills and rank them appropriately, the, the first step is to have an economic forecast and then lock it down and say, okay, that's what the economy is gonna do. Here's the revenue we're gonna collect, the spending we're going to do. Now let's take this bill and, and see how it changes those revenues and spending, holding the economy fixed. So the economy is always held fixed. That way, if you have a bill in March and a bill in October, they're comparable because you haven't changed the economy in between. That's traditional scoring. That's appropriate for 99.9% .9 of things that Congress does. And you rename a post office, it's not gonna have any income, you know, big economic effects. For some things, it's appropriate to say, wait, this the whole point of this is to change the economy. And that's what they're saying about the, these plans. So maybe we ought to see if we take the bill, allow the economy to change, and look at both the impact of the bill and the indirect impacts from the, the economic growth, what's the, what's the bottom line in that setting? That's a dynamic score. You allow the economy to grow, or in this case, perhaps not grow, and you learn something about the growth, right? And if you if you say this, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and it turns out the economy shrinks, that's an important thing to know. Or didn't think this would be too much good. Turns out the economy grows a lot. Congress should know that. And, and so there became you know, the CBOs had the capacity to do this and the Joint Committee on Taxation has had the capacity to do this for a long time. Started back when I was a director. Uh, it has been used on a regular basis to look at president's budgets. Um, so that it's not something that's hard for them to, to get up to speed on. And in previous Congresses, it was part of the rules that if a bill was of substantial magnitude, was something like a, a $2 trillion bill, it would be dynamically scored so you could see the impact. Um, when the Democrats took over control of the Congress, they got rid of that and got rid of the, the use of dynamic scoring. That's a shame because it'd be important to know how these plans really do affect growth um, once they, they're written down and, and we have legislative text and know exactly what they're going to do.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you just mentioned, in the past life, you were the uh, director of the Congressional Budget Office. And I'm trying to remember back to the debate over the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but the concern on the other side of dynamic scoring was that it's being biased towards those tax cuts. Is that true? And should we be suspicious of it as a result because of that? Uh, it applies equally to tax cuts and to uh, infrastructure investments, spending programs. I mean, it it, it is how does this bill change the, the, tra- the trajectory of the economy. And that can happen on the tax side or on the spending side. There's no particular bias. There will always be concerns that it's not, quote, done right. But again, uh, the important thing is it's being done the same for all proposals so that, you know, suppose you think the Joint Committee is just, you know, doesn't understand growth and that you don't get enough credit. That may or may not be true, but everyone's getting the same uh, treatment. And, and so, uh, the important thing in scoring is, is getting proposals ranked correctly, and, and that would be true here. Right? They dynamically scored the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I promise you Republicans were disappointed in the numbers. It didn't show near the, the growth that they thought they would get. And, and that's, in my experience, par for the course. Members always think that you know this thing's going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. And what they forget is that, yeah, there's something there that's the greatest thing since sliced bread, but there's also usually other stuff. That came came along, and, and when you're scoring the bill, you score everything. Right. And so again, you look at the American Families Plan. It, unless there's some really magical change in labor force participation, there's no growth there, and all the infrastructure in the world is not going to change that. That's life. What about the politics of these proposals? You know, it seems like both sides want an infrastructure bill. I saw Senator Shelley Mark Capito of West Virginia, a Republican, was invited to the White House to discuss how they might pick up some of the votes on the, from the right. What are the odds of reaching some sort of bipartisan agreement, first on the American Jobs Plan and then second on the American Families Plan? Zero, um, I think, honestly. Um so, so there, there are there are a subset of the proposals that means both the spending proposals, traditional infrastructure, it's about a quarter of the American Jobs Plan that you could categorize as infrastructure-like, includes modern things like broadband, but includes the traditional stuff. And there's a subset of the tax increases that would be um, manageable and tolerable in 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 a bipartisan setting where no one gets everything they want, and Republicans would you know, grumble, but maybe go along for the package. And that's the nature of those things. So so you can imagine um, that they're getting to be uh, some deal like that. Now, what's left over? What's left over is uh, politically contentious spending and, and, and lightning rods on taxes. And Democrats still want to get all this done. So they could then pass that in, in reconciliation on straight line uh, party line votes and then try to go get elected in swing districts where the Democrats own all the lightning rods. The Republicans got the vote for the stuff everyone likes. Well, that's not going to happen. Right? Democrats can figure that out. And so they're never going to uh, put put it in that, put anyone in that position. They're going to keep it all together. Uh, the, Demo- the, the Democrats, as a result, will essentially invite the Republicans to leave the room, and they'll they'll do this on on their own votes. Yeah. Do you think that just take a while? We're going to watch this 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 kabuki for a couple of months. I think people disagree on this, but I think this all comes down to a single reconciliation bill sometime in, in the fall, maybe the late fall, where they roll together the American Jobs Plan, the American Family Plan, and they get the pieces that they can agree on and off they go. Right, right. Just before they have to go into next year and start running for re-election. 
Right. All right. So let's end on, you know, talking about jobs day, Friday's jobs day. We're going to get the, the monthly jobs report. What do you think we'll learn about the economic recovery from this report? And do you have a prediction of the numbers? Honestly, I don't think we'll really learn that much. I think I think we know that the progress against the virus has been fairly dramatic recently. The vaccines are literally miraculous. And, and the quicker we can get uh, the population vaccinated. Uh, vaccinated, the better. Um, with that has come the ability to open sectors that were not previously really able to be open. So think of restaurants as the poster child for that, but lots of activities which groups could not um, uh, do. Well, that's led to people being called back to those jobs. And so we're going to see a lot of jobs um, uh, over the next couple of months. Uh, we came nearly a million last month. We could get a million this month. I think that's that's entirely within the realm of possibilities. Certainly 700,000 seems like the lower bound to me. Um, and, and so we just sort of know that. I don't know how much we'll learn. I, I think the thing to watch for is the, the sort of anecdotal stories that we hear about uh, job shortages and inability to staff up turning into something really visible, where it turns out that the reason we're not creating very many jobs is that people are not coming out to the labor force. And that's, that's gonna be the focus it's going to take a couple of months to really get a feel for how big that is. You know, you'll re recall that when they extended the pandemic unemployment insurance program, they included a $300 a week federal bonus. Um, that means that about half of the people on UI are making more on UI than they would at their previous job. People like me, you know, evince their concern over this at the time because in a in a labor market that doesn't have a, a virus affecting it, that's a big headwind to getting people back to work. And we may be seeing that right now. Yeah, I think I saw the governor of Montana maybe talking about this recently, where he was uh, talking about how in his state, you know, people there there's nope. just blocks. This is quite remarkable. He 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 walked away from the federal program. He said Montana will not participate, um, and we will that he will not get that um, that bonus and. They, they are actually offering back-to-work bonuses. If you take a job, we'll, we'll give you a check because they need people to go to work. No, that's incredible. But do you think we'll continue to see, I mean, economic gains over the next six months as more people get vaccinated and return to, you know, more normal activities? Or will that be plateaued? Um, you know, the economy grew about 6.5% annual rate in the first quarter. Um, most people had it pegged somewhere between 6 and 8 for the year. So you could see it accelerate a little bit further. Um, I wouldn't be surprised a bit by that. And um, it really will be determined uh, by not the demand. We know there's tons of, uh, of money that's been sitting in bank accounts and people are ready to go do things. Uh, it's going to be dictated by how many people are going to show up to work. And that, that'll dictate the pace. I'll have to keep an eye on all of it. Doug, thank you for joining us again this week. And I look forward to our next talk. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.